This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm going to talk tonight about um, post-liberalism and uh, some, some contemporary uh, Catholic political thinkers. So I'm, I'm going to spend most of my time actually talking about liberalism because in order to explain what post-liberalism is, I have to first explain what liberalism is. So I'll spend a lot of time trying to define that, distinguish it from other things, in particular from what I'm going to call kind of a classical uh, tradition, eudaimonist tradition, which I'll explain in a bit. Uh, then talk uh, a bit about why many of us are dissatisfied with liberalism, discontents of liberalism, and then finally, what are some of the alternatives uh, that present themselves? So, uh, so in order to find liberalism, a philosopher, right? So I'm going to go way back to the ancient Greeks and uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans and talk about what I would call the classical eudaimonist tradition. So eudaimonia is uh, Aristotle's word for happiness. It's something that's objective, kind of activity that human beings are naturally ordered to participate in. And uh, so this tradition actually starts in a way with Plato, uh, through Aristotle, uh, Cicero, Roman philosopher and uh, statesman, Augustine, Boethius, Thomas Aquinas. So those are the sort of main figures in this tradition. Uh, in, this, in this tradition, there's a, a good, which is something that exists and is grounded in our human nature. The contrasting position is going to be the liberal tradition, or you might even call it just the modern position, in which the good is just whatever we desire. So whatever we happen to desire or be seeking uh, is, is good for us on this tradition. So there's gonna be a number of important contrasts here between the common good and the aggregate good, between liberty and license, between tyranny and authoritarianism. So I'm gonna explain some of those distinctions. Um, there are gonna be four, um, let's see. So liberalism, let's see, let's start here. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna go back to the classical tradition again for a bit. So human nature orders us toward a fixed end, Greek word is telos, which is happiness, right? which is what in fact we're all truly seeking, to be as truly good. And to achieve happiness, we have to develop virtues of character, virtues enable us to be happy. And since we're, we are naturally social or political animals, we can develop these virtues and practice them in, 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 in this activity of happiness only in a community. So there's a social good. Virtue on this picture is its own reward. And there's something that's called the common good, which is something that we all participate by taking part in a, in a well-ordered community, a just well-ordered community. And this, this partnership that we can participate in in our communities is the major part of our own individual happiness, as well as the good of others. So the common good on this picture is essentially something that is indivisible, that's shareable, right? Yeah, I, I like to use the analogy of participating in a choir, let's say, right? So the joy you get from participating in a choir comes from everybody getting together and singing together, right? You add more people, if they're good voices, that doesn't divide the good, right? It doesn't mean that if the choir grows, each of us enjoy the choir less because there's a smaller piece of the, of, of the pie that we can, we can enjoy. It's, it's, it's essentially an, an indivisible good. And likewise, for the classical tradition, common good is this sort of invisible good that we all came from by virtue of participating in a just and well-ordered society. So, um, so that's the picture. Now, when we get to Augustine, uh, and we, we have the confluence now of Christianity with this Greek philosophical, Greek and Roman philosophical tradition, 
we add a new layer to this. So the common good, or our, our happiness, has both a natural and now a supernatural component to it. Uh, Augustine talks about two different kinds of cities, city of man, city of good. Each of these cities has its own common good. So it's a natural common good and also a supernatural common good. Uh, this leads to um, Pope uh, Galatius I, in 492, making a distinction between what he calls the two swords. So there are two institutions that exist at this point in time, the church and the state. Both have the task of creating this kind of common good, leading people towards, towards their, their ultimate good, uh, both natural and supernatural. One does this by preaching and using the sacraments and ecclesiastical discipline as the church. The other one does it by, uh, by law and by uh, by use of force if it necessary. So both of these uh, are, are, are swords have the same purpose, according to Pope Galatians, but they're separate, they're distinct. So the church does its thing, it doesn't get involved in the political thing, the political state does its thing, but they're working together collaboratively for, for this common end. So liberalism, in contrast to this, is really a byproduct of the modern uh, movement away from Aristotle and revolt against Aristotle happens in the 16th, 17th centuries, uh, and a movement towards uh, kind of materialism or kind of dualism, different ways of putting it. What, what these things have in mind, have in common is that there's a world of matter, right, which is purposeless, dead, sort of moving around according to mathematical formulas, and then there's a world of consciousness and human will, which floats free from the world of matter and has its own completely separate autonomy. So in this sort of picture, there's no, there's no good that we see beyond what we choose to call good. Right? Uh, human will has no anchor in reality or in nature beyond itself, right? self-contained. Self um, this, um, and so for instance, Thomas Hobbes is a great example of this. He was a 17th century English philosopher, and uh, he's very careful about defining terms, but when he gets to the word good, he doesn't give a definition. He says, instead he defines what we call good. So what a man calls good is what he desires. Right? So there isn't in fact such a thing as good out there, goodness out there. There's simply whatever you, you happen to desire. So we get, it's what you might call kind of psychological positivism about, about the good, right? Uh, whatever you happen to desire is what you call good. There's no standard above that by which you can judge whether your desires are disordered or proper or, or appropriate or whatever. Uh, there's, a, there's a slightly variant tradition here uh, represented by someone like Bentham in the utilitarian tradition, kind of hedonistic tradition. Well, you might say on that tradition there is a kind of objective good which is pleasure and avoiding pain. Uh, but even there, when, as it develops, let's say, in the John Stuart Mill, it becomes more subjective because Mill then says, well, there are different, different qualities of pleasure what makes one pleasure better than another is just the fact that an experienced judge prefers it. So it still all comes down to the preference or desire on human beings to determine what, what we count as good. All right, so with that, with that kind of a picture, um, there's no room for such a thing as the common good, right? Because good is what each individual desires for himself or herself. So the, there, there could be an aggregate good. You can sort of add up how good people how, how much people's desires are satisfied in the aggregate. There wouldn't be a common good that we all participate in, right, which we all uh, benefit from equally, so to speak. Right? Now, this, this then leads immediately to a problem for liberalism, which is, um, in effect, then, what they've got is a model in which individuals are acting to satisfy 
their own desires, their own desires and impulses and so on, right? And um, so how do we unify society in such a way that we're all pulling together, right? So that we don't end up, as Hobbes described it, in a war of all against all, where we're constantly combating with each other because my desires and yours don't, don't line up, we're often in conflict with each other, right? Um, there are a number of different solutions to this, really four major solutions. Um, and I won't go into detail here. One solution would be the Hobbes' own solution, which is we somehow managed to create a state which is able to, was able to force us to be unselfish enough that we're able to cooperate together. Um, then another solution based on Rousseau and, and uh, Hutchison and others is, well, maybe we can hope that we all are sympathetic or empathetic enough that we're spontaneously moved to act for the benefit of others and therefore to contribute to a lawful society. Third, third option is Hume's suggestion that we can just sort of be habituated, accustomed into acting decently over time. Fourth solution for Kant, there's some kind of a super uh, empirical self that has uh, that is governed by reason and uh, it, it acts out of a sort of self-respect for itself as a rational agent and therefore uh, acts according to a very austere set of logical rules that can help us to live together socially. So I don't have time to talk about all of that, uh, but I will suggest a book um, by Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue, in which he discusses these four in some detail. Uh, it, the chapter is called The Failure of the Enlightenment Project. So as you can see, he doesn't think they worked, and I, I agree with, uh, with uh, uh, McIntyre that for various reasons, each of these solutions don't back work. But anyway, that's, that's a part of another, another lecture, really. So what happens then with liberalism is that instead of the common good, we focus on individual rights, individual liberties. Right? Uh, and so spiritual ends, like the ends of religion, these are potential sources of conflict, right? because people have different conceptions of religion. So religion has to be privatized and really driven from the public square. Uh, so what the public, what the state can simply do is guarantee each individual his or her own liberty and freedom to the greatest possible degree and, and, and leave its hands off of anything religious, supernatural, or transcendent character. Um, so political morality then doesn't consist, see, so political morality changes here. For the classical picture, it consists in, in implicating certain virtues and enable you to contribute to the common good. In the modern picture, it consists in just internalizing a set of rules right, that enable us to function together so we don't tear each other apart all the time. So internalizing the rules is a crucial thing. So, um, so let's talk about a couple important contrasts here before we get into some of the more details. Um, in, in, uh, in classical philosophy, Cicero, for instance, talks quite a bit about liberty and the value of liberty. Um, and you might think, okay, so that's Cicero's kind of a liberal. <laughs> Some people have actually argued that recently. But I think what the classical tradition means by liberty is freedom to do what you ought to do. Right? So, of course, that's a wide range of possibilities, but it means acting in ways, choosing how exactly I'm going to inculcate virtue and contribute to the common good. Lots of, op of options to do that, but I, I, liberty means choosing among those. Whereas, um, for modern thinkers, for liberal thinkers, liberty just means the freedom to do just whatever you want to do. Right? So if the law constrains me in any way from murder or rape or whatever, that's limiting my liberty on the modern perspective. Right? If I have the desire to do those things, then, uh, then that's my liberty would include doing them. Right? Whereas the classical picture would say, that's not liberty at all. Right? That's license. That's really 
you know, acting as you want to do, but in a way that's, that's crazy irrational and that actually contrary to your own good, not to mention the good of others. But liberalism can't make that distinction, right? Because for liberalism, there's no, no such thing as somebody acting contrary to their own good, really, because their good is just whatever they desire. So, so you have to just give them free reign, whatever you happen to prefer. Uh, somewhat related to this is the distinction I would say between, I would make between tyranny and authoritarianism. So again, in the classical tradition, going all back to Plato, uh, tyranny is a bad thing. We all know avoid tyranny. And the definition of tyranny in the classical picture is a situation where the ruler is not acting for the common good, but for his own private good, or perhaps out of just a lust for domination, as, as Augustine puts it, right? So there's something wrong with the motivation of the ruler, right? The ruler is not, is not orienting the society towards the common good, as he should. For liberals, the, the bad regime is an authoritarian regime. This just means a state in which the government is, is, tr is transgressing the rights of the individual. Right? Um, regardless of whether it's really for, you know, there's no common good, so you can't, you can't make that distinction anymore. Right? Uh, so it's a very different sort of distinction right, between uh, in the two traditions. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's some background that hopefully will help to explain then the next uh, section here, which are I'm trying to distill uh, what I think of as the, the sort of core principles of uh, liberalism and of uh, classical tradition. So the four basic principles of liberalism are, first of all, separation of religion and politics. So only neutral secular purposes are allowed in the political sphere, sort of strict separation. Uh, prioritizing individual liberty and rights over social ends. There really are no social ends other than just the aggregate of individual welfare, so to speak. Uh, now, thirdly, this means the delegitimizing and disempowering of intermediate institutions like church, school, and family. So liberals are prioritizing the rights and the autonomy of the individual human being. Right? And so the state's function is, to, is always to liberate the individual from any kind of restrictions on their behavior, including restrictions from their family, from local communities, from church, and so on. So as, as I'll explain a little bit later, liberalism invents the modern state and says we're going to have a monopoly of power within this territory, and we call that the state. And the state's job is to, is to look out for individuals, right? And so it's, it's really out to combat those intermediate institutions, so to speak, that are in any way restricting, restricting our liberty. So it's not so much, the way to think about it is not individual versus state, but state and individual against community, so to speak. That's, uh, at least that's the classical way of looking at it. Um, and finally, the liberal instrumentalizes the state. So the state really is a necessary evil. There's nothing good about political life as such. It's merely justified in terms of the other, the extrinsic ends that it serves, right? namely securing more liberty for individuals and more prosperity perhaps, and so on. But there's no, there's no intrinsic value to political life as such. So in classical eudominism, in contrast, the state's primary job is to assist religion and other communities in ordering human beings to their ultimate ends, including the common good, both supernatural and natural. Secondly, individual liberty is only one good among many, and even there we have to make a distinction between liberty and license, so it's not just whatever we want to do. Uh, thirdly, there's respect for autonomy and authority of non-political institutions. And this again goes back to the two swords idea. So in the classical picture, you don't just have the state which has all authority, you have the state and the church, and they both have their respective spheres of authority, and then you also have later university schools, confraternities, orders, and all kinds of other things, uh, each with their own uh, 
uh, spheres of authority. And there's no, if you drop yourself into the middle of medieval Europe and say, who's in charge here? There's no clear answer, right? Sort of the local church, sort of the bishop, sort of the lords, sort of the king, maybe the emperor. You know, uh, there's a, a network of interwoven lines of authority in that kind of picture. What happens with the modern era and with the emergence of liberalism is that all that's cleaned out, right? So that we have a territory, we have a single state, which has a monopoly of authority and that ultimate authority in that region. So I also think it's a little ironic when classical liberals, libertarians, sort of take credit, say so liberalism, liberalism liberate the individual from the state, we protect the individual from the state. You created the state, right? And then, and then you take credit for you know, protecting us from it, right? So, uh, so I think that's a little, little ironic. Um, okay, um, now, another thing that liberals often do, and I should say here, as you may see, um, if we now apply this to like contemporary American politics over the last hundred years or so, we'll find that nearly everybody's a liberal, right? I mean, every, almost everybody in our political spectrum from Ted Cruz and, and Rubio to um, uh, Sanders and uh, with uh, Warren, they're all liberals, right? As according to this definition, right? There are sort of right liberals and left liberals. There are some important differences in terms of um, how much how much emphasis they put on the free market versus redistributing wealth and so on. But they all agree about the basic idea here, which is the point of the state is to maximize individual autonomy in some fashion. Um, yeah, they can see that in somewhat different ways. So, um, so nothing that. Um, so anyway, here's here's a here's a central problem for liberalism, for the modern world, if you want to call it that, um, which is how do we find a replacement for religion as a principal source of meaning and motivation, and for a way of pulling people together so they can cooperate uh, successfully. Um, how do we unify a community around a common purpose? And starting with people like John Locke. 17th century, to some extent, some of our own founding fathers, the idea was the substitute for religion is going to be commerce. It's going to be economics, basically. So, um, so we, will, we will replace all those transcendent ends with a worldly, empirical sort of end, economic prosperity, producing more stuff, more control over nature, and so on. And the goal here, um, so meanings to be sought, really, through accumulating things, through participating in a process that leads to material progress. The goal here, too, is one of infinite progress, right? This is, again, an important difference from the classical picture, where in the classical world, everyone is looking for how can we be happy, where happy is a kind of finite thing that's defined by human nature. Uh, with the modern world, instead, we want just more, like Sam McConaughey said, right? More power, more wealth, more stuff, right? Uh, with no limit whatsoever. Uh, and it's that, it's that infinitely upward uh, escalator of technological progress and economic progress that gives meaning to our lives, especially in, in the liberal world. A secondary purpose, actually, it's also very important, is war. Uh, so liberalism is often sort of national war as a way of unifying us. So I'll talk more about that in a minute. So um, liberals often lay claim to institutions that are actually products of classical eudaimonism, medieval synthesis. So I've got a bunch of lists on your handout. So reason time, I won't go through them in great detail. But uh, the first list is a bunch of things that liberals will often think, oh, if you're against liberalism, you're against you know, rule of law, you're against representation, you're against uh, habeas corpus, and, uh, and so on. Well, actually, all of these things predate liberalism. They all have roots in classical tradition. 
there's political representation, people in parliaments and states. There's the rule of law. Henry de Bracken, 1235, talks about how the king is under the law just as much as anybody else is. Uh, Ordinance of Justice in Florence, similarly. Uh, Magna Carta, of course, are important, recognizing that there are customary limitations to the authority of, of, of the king. The right of rebellion against tyrants, social contract, consent of the governed. You find all these in Cicero, Aquinas, to some extent, Richard Coker, Magna Carta, political decentralization, procedural rights, uh, the existence of corporations for the community institutions. English common law already protects broad, uh, broad kind of free freedom of speech and assembly and petition, independent judiciary, uh, markets governed by supply and demand. These weren't discovered by Adam Smith. It's a school in Spain and Salamanca in the late Middle Ages, studied this in great detail. Uh, and of course, the rights of non Christian communities to govern themselves. To uh, not to join in with the uh, Christian consensus of the surrounding society. It was important because uh, the Council in 633 in Spain, the Council of Toledo, that says that uh, Jewish communities, other non Christian communities, can govern themselves. They have a right to pass their religion on to their children without any kind of interference by the rest of the community. You know, a recognition that faith has to be voluntary in a sense, that it has to be, uh, has to be organic, can't be. Can't be imposed on people by force, it shouldn't be. Um, I was talking to David Novak years ago, Rabbi, a professor years in Toronto, and he said, you know, from a Jewish point of view, that medieval arrangement, so far as it actually worked, was ideal really for Jews because it enabled them to uh, maintain their integrity, maintain their self government, uh, didn't sort of force them to uh, join into a kind of secular uh, consensus. Um, so, what are the characteristically liberal practices and institutions, then, if all those things are not the liberal ones? Well, I've got another one this year, but I think they're characteristically liberal inventions. Uh, strict separation of church and state, an attempt to create a religiously neutral state, that's a liberal institution. Again, this territorial sovereignty, this modern state with a monopoly of power. Uh, statutory law created by assemblies instead of, uh, instead of custom. So, the medieval legislatures thought their job was to discover what the law was, not to create the law. Right? Uh, liberalism thinks that the law is something artificial that we create through our reason in order to you know, keep ourselves working together uh, as far as we can. And so, uh, so there's a, an emphasis here on reason and choice, individual reason and choice over custom and tradition. Uh, the liberation of individuals from the undue influence, as they would put it, of non-political authorities, the denial of the church as a society the right of independent self-government. I mean, actually, a good illustration, I think, of this would be the recent COVID uh, crisis, right? Um, so if in the Middle Ages, the federal government told churches, you have to close down for months and months because of this crisis, the church would have said, well, that's an interesting suggestion. We'll consider it and get back to you. <laughs> uh, they wouldn't have considered that there was anybody had any authority to tell them whether they would keep their churches open or not. Uh, in the liberal world, on the other hand, the state has absolute final say here. Right? The state says you can't go to church, you can't go to church. Right? Uh, and so that's uh, an illustration of the kind of transformation that happens here when we go from pre-liberalism to liberalism. Um, you get um, a laissez-faire political economy. So again, um, the medieval world is characterized by a number of institutions, especially guilds and other things that, that restrict the restraints on trade, as Adam Smith and so on put it. Um, and they were aimed at furthering certain social ends, 
right? Uh, that the guilds were trying to turn production into something that was contributing to a common good, not just to some sort of aggregate good. Um, and um, so liberals, I think, you know, liberals can be concerned with, with equality, right? They can redistribute wealth. But what they can't really be concerned with are uh, social ends as such, right? Because once they start preferring one way of life over another, they've abandoned their neutrality. They've, they've started to impose notions of value on the individual, which they're not allowed to do. So all our social arrangements, our culture, and so on, for a liberal, has to be a kind of accidental byproduct of individual people doing things on their own, right? They can't be imposed or even supported from the top down on their picture. A monetary system based on uh, usury and fractional reserves, full economic rights for corporations, including uh, immortal property. So corporations can exist forever, generate as much wealth as they want. That's really a new modern idea. Um, rejection of morals and public decency as a basis for the law. Freedom of divorce and remarriage and with prenuptial agreements and turning marriage into a kind of temporary arrangement, housing arrangement, and much more than that. Uh, as opposed to, again, the medieval conception in which marriage was forming a new society. To break it up as a kind of civil war, in a sense. Right? It was uh, something beyond the contract. Uh, mass mobilization of people and industry for national wars, kind of benevolent imperialism. Uh, nations is propositional, um, so presumptive right of migration, free trade, global government. And then techno technocracy, I think, is very important here. So, um, so liberalism did bring us the idea that the state should, should be uh, supporting technology because technology just creates ability to do things and hand to individuals, right? So it's a, it's a neutral activity from the, from the uh, point of view of liberalism. It's not, in fact, neutral. It actually shapes our society in certain very definite ways, but it, it sort of looks neutral. And so, and so we've seen, but right from the Royal Society of England right up to the NSF and NIHPA, uh, very centralized, bureaucratized, subsidized uh, technological progress. And that leads naturally to kind of technocracy, where we have rule by, by experts. So instead of looking for people who have virtue and wisdom uh, to be our leaders, we look for people who claim scientific expertise. Right? Uh, that's an important transformation. Um, imprisonment is a principle mode of judicial punishment. That's a liberal invention, I think, largely because in liberalism it's really hard to justify punishment because you're you're inflicting pain or something on an individual, and the whole idea is you can't do that, you're not supposed to do that. And so originally the idea of imprisonment was that it was a penitentiary, it was, a, it was really a therapeutic thing. They were going to rehabilitate people and leave them and punish them. And it just turned into a really horrible form of punishment thing that most of us would want to do. Um, police forces, too, of course, a modern invention. Um, in the world, uh, communities had to enforce the law spontaneously. Police forces do it for them. Okay, um, real briefly, was America a liberal in its founding? Is it an important sort of issue? Um, my own view is that it wasn't really, um, that it was pretty liberal for the most part. I mean, you can point to John Locke, a liberal philosopher with a lot of influence, but if you look at the things that people, the founders actually liked in John Locke, it was things that were actually already common to the broader tradition, like the right of people to rebel against a tyrant, which is actually one of the more traditional aspects of the uh, uh, law. So I'll take a look at that. Okay, so uh, discontents of liberalism. So I'm not the alternative, so I'm going to get there as soon as I can. But, um, but basically, the, the point I think is that 
Liberalism certainly has succeeded in some ways. It's produced a lot of wealth, at least as, as they measure it. It's produced lots of technical progress, for sure. But it's also kind of a pretty heavy cost. Right? And so it's important for us to remind ourselves of what some of the costs are. Uh, the disempowerment of local communities through centralized media, communication empires, the military industrial complex, nationalized higher education, department of education, and so on. So in many, many ways, it's impossible for small communities to govern themselves uh, without interference from these larger authorities. And that leads, secondly, to the destruction of communities through, again, through higher education and mobility, national mobilization for war, and so on. Um, Wendell Berry, in a lot of his books, talks about the very intentional destruction of traditional agriculture by, by the government uh, over the last 100 years. Uh, so, uh, so disrupting, destroying local communities. Um, it also has disrupted our communities in, in a kind of intergenerational sense, right? breaking up the continuity from one generation to the next by, um, again, through this perpetual technological change and disruption. Uh, Schumpeter talks about capitalism having a creative destructiveness, and it definitely does. It's, 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 it's creative, it's also destructive, especially these kinds of things. Uh, the uh, respect that a traditional community has for the aged is displaced now by uh, respect for the scientific expert. So, Nam Nam who writes and tells us how to do things, right? Um, there's a debasing of culture. So, the replacing of folk culture with a commercialized pop culture is increasingly coarse, coarsened, as we know. Uh, nominalism on steroids. So, uh, individual autonomy, I right? guess, the whole idea of and so eventually that means individual autonomy over nature, including human nature itself. So the individual will becomes completely unmoored from human nature. This, of course, leads to the modern sort of trans uh, ideology, right? So even one sexuality, one sex, now becomes something fluid that you can impose, you can impose your will upon, uh, as opposed to, as opposed to just accepting, like, how it's been created. Um, the decimation of the working class, we can talk about this more in detail. Um, you see the earnings, hourly earnings of, uh, of the, uh, those with, with relatively low education. Over the last 40 years, it's actually declined in real terms. Uh, while the cost of living in many ways has gone up, in a way that hits them particularly hard. Um, so medicine, um, uh, education for their kids, especially the public schools failing. Uh, being able to afford housing in safe neighborhoods and so on, all these things become increasingly expensive. So, of course, working people have had to go to, to incomes in cases, which then further increases the cost of living because they can't afford to you know, take care of uh, food and housing and so on. Child care is a good thing. Um, and so, um, so, you know, the liberal solution, of course, is just to redistribute money to them, right? But then that just creates a permanent underclass of dependency. It doesn't really solve the root problem, which is that people need work as, as a way of expressing themselves, as a way of uh, the foundation of self-respect, as, as a way of sort of meaningfully interacting with others. Destruction of the family, of course, we all know this. Uh, and the, I think the most telling statistics here are the declining marriage rates. So from 16 per thousand in 1946 to fewer than eight per thousand now, uh, the percentage of households Involving married couples has fallen from 80% in 1946 to 49% now. So it's sort of drastic declines in, in marriage. Number of ne never married going from 9 to 35%, and so on. Uh, declining religiosity, 
So for a long time, it looked like America was the exception to this rule. So across the rest of the liberal world, Europe, Australia, and so on, religious affiliation has been declining pretty dramatically from the whole 20th century. We, were, we seem to be doing well. So last uh, 20 years or so, now, now we're catching up. Uh, the number of folks who are unaffiliated uh, has, has risen from uh, 14 to 25% in the last uh, 20 years. And when you look at the millennial generation, it's up to 40%. So it's, uh, we're, we're, approaching a, we're approaching a tipping point there of religiosity. And that, I think, is connected to my last point, which is demographic class. So these last two things, declining marriage rates, declining religiosity, they're both associated with declining uh, birth rates. And so now every developed liberal society in the world is well below the replacement level of uh, 2.1. Uh, we're down to about uh, 1.7 million in America. And so, so this is why I think post-liberalism is relevant, because it's inevitable. <laughs> Liberalism is not sustaining itself demographically. Liberalism is in a state of demographic collapse. So the question is not whether we should be post-liberals, but what kind of post-liberalism we're going to be. It's liberalism itself, I think, is doomed. It's not able to sustain itself, uh, even at the most basic demographic level of reproduction. And I say, well, some countries can survive by just massive immigration from other non-liberal societies. But that's another way of getting rid of liberalism, really, right? because if you, you have to import large, large numbers or Middle East or something, we're not liberal, then again, liberalism in the world will stop to cease exist. Um, so, as I say, um, liberalism. So, um, two more points for a wrap up. Um, you might say, well, but what's the alternative, right? I mean, we're in this, we live in this very multicultural, pluralistic society, right? How can you recreate medieval Europe, right? In the US at uh, 2022? It's a fair question, I think. And maybe the answer is, well, we can't. Maybe these liberal institutions we have are the best we can do. But there's still a difference between being a liberal in the sense of thinking that these, are, these institutions and these practices we have are the best possible practices, and indeed that we have a duty to defend and extend these practices everywhere in the world, right? And thinking, you know, it's a humble dwelling but my own, right? It's the best we can do under these conditions. Uh, and so that kind of um, very humble liberalism, I'm okay with, actually. Right? But then that would mean that uh, the national government would then have a kind of new kind of quasi-fair attitude towards states and communities that want to go illiberal. So if Utah or Louisiana wants to become an illiberal place, the government says, fine, you know, who are we to say you can't? And likewise, if Hungary or Poland or some other country wants to go that way, we should say fine, that's not our business. Whereas the liberal philosophy says, no, that's wrong, right? Uh, they're, they're crushing individual rights, and so we have to go to war or whatever. We have to, we have to stop that wherever it happens. So at the very least, I think that's an important alternative. Um, so again, we'll get to the last section for the next last section, post-liberal alternatives. For reason of time, I won't really talk about the first couple, which are sort of historical interest. Uh, G.K. Chesterton and Heller Goth, which was something called distributism, which we'll talk about a little bit later, way back uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, in Germany, Wilhelm Rupke and others developed what's called social marketing economy that uh, respected uh, the notion of the common good in, in lots of important ways. Um, populism is, uh, again, historically very important in America, agrarian movements, labor movements, uh, which are uh, much less significant nowadays, but it certainly revived, perhaps. Um, more, more, uh, more contemporary relevance the last few. A kind of national conservatism has grown up uh, more recently, um, representing um, 
not so much, this is not so much among Catholic thinkers, for the most part. It's much more attractive, mostly to, to Protestant and Jewish thinkers, I think, um, like uh, Yoram Hazoni. Um, but there are aspects of it that, that Catholic thinkers could embrace, right? because Catholics do, think, do have a principle of subsidiarity, which suggests, or to put it as Aquinas does, the orders of charity. So you are, you're, you're supposed to love yourself and your family more than others, your local community more than other communities, your own country more than other countries. So a kind of moderate natural, nationalism uh, makes sense, actually, from a, from a Catholic point of view. Then uh, most recently, most relevantly, perhaps, is this movement of uh, integralism, or neo-integralism, uh, by Adrian uh, Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, Chad Pecknold, and others. I've developed this recently. There's a bunch of magazines, compact, uh, new, uh, new polity, and so on, that have risen up. And the idea of integralism is, goes back to that very first point I made, which is uh, trying to create a situation in which church and religion and state are not completely separate. Rather, the state recognizes itself as having some responsibility to encouraging religion in some way. Um, so I won't really have a chance to talk too much about the details of this. Um, this is certainly in many ways a traditional Catholic teaching, going back to places the first I mentioned, or Boniface VIII, or Leo XIII. Um, there's a, there is the question of how to interpret Vatican II, that sounds in some ways as if the church was embracing a kind of liberal philosophy of uh, laissez-faire, respect for religion. But I think if you read it carefully, it's not really saying that, because I don't think it is. It's recognizing the importance of religion itself and also the importance of, of communities so it doesn't really treat religion as a purely individual affair, which is really what the liberalism has to do. Um, okay, so a few issues of implementation, I'll wrap it up. So one issue is, if we do go with something like integralism, is it possible to, for there to be a kind of pluralistic or ecumenical integralism? And uh, Sarab Amari is one of these integralists, in a book recently called The, uh, the Unbroken Thread. And in that book, he does, sort of, he does advocate a kind of pluralistic um, integralism, if that makes sense, right? So he's got chapters not just of Catholic figures, but uh, Protestant, Orthodox, Jewish, chapter uh, on Confucius. And so the thought is that uh, you know, in a society like ours that is pluralistic, we can still find plenty of common ground where we can all recognize that we do have a spiritual end, right? We may conceive of it in somewhat different terms, but we can all collaborate in ways that encourage people and support that kind of uh, religious uh, affiliation ways. Another um, sort of important issue is, does integralism require the political empowerment of, of bishops or pope? Right? So if we move in an integralist direction, does that mean we're actually going to give more power to bishops or the pope? Um, I have to say, I, 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 if that were true, I wouldn't want to be an integralist for sure. <laughs> they just give them not, not, not a disrespect to our own bishop, but looking at the bishops in general in the United States, and they're not, they're not the first group I want to give more political power to. But I don't think that's actually what integralism is all about, right? Because I, you can certainly have an integralist model in which, uh, let's say you have a, a mostly Catholic country, and uh, the lay people who are the rulers, or the political rulers of that country, take their responsibility of encouraging Catholic faith seriously. But that doesn't mean they actually have to give power to the bishops or to the priests that matter, right? There's plenty of room here for lay Christians uh, to exercise political power in a sensitive sort of way, in a way that looks to these final ends. Um, you know, and looking to the bishops and to other people in the church for advice where they have real expertise, but uh, where they don't have expertise, right? just exercising their own judgment, acting according to their own conscience. 
Uh, so in particular, you know, should we have a situation where the state supports the church financially? I mean, I think generally no. Um, the experience of Germany's had to do with this is bad for the Catholic Church in particular. Uh, and actually in America, the church is becoming kind of better focus right now, as, as a matter of fact, through things like the Catholic Charities. And I think in general, that's been a bad influence. So, so I don't think liberalism requires that at all. Right? So liberalism, rightly understood, right? going back to Pope Galatius, would say there are two separate institutions here. And we don't want to blend them together or mix them, combine them, right? But we want the state to recognize that, like the church, it has a supernatural end. That's, I think, a core idea of a liberalism. All right, so I'll go ahead and stop there and give us some time for questions and discussions on I'll just answer, I'll just take my own questions, I guess. Yeah, we're going to get to Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, well, I'm interested that you put a, in your own Zoe as a sort of like post-liberal alternative. Because yeah. I actually read against the book, um, uh, first name of it, the most popular one, Dave. Yeah. Like the case of nationalism or whatever it's called. Yeah. The virtue of national assembly. Yeah. And, uh, and I know, uh, just to go back to a little bit earlier to your lecture, you mentioned how John Stuart Mill was one of these big liberal components. And if you read his own book, one of his major um, influences is, that is actually uh, John Stuart Mill's. And you have under uh, liberal yeah. institutions the idea of territorial, so territorial sovereignty and nation state yeah. as a liberal idea. And yeah. Pozzoni advocates for territorial sovereignty and the nation state as a, I mean, to me, it seems like he was a, I think Jonah Goldberg put it correctly when he called him a liberal nationist. But yeah. So I'm sort of confused why would you have Pozzoni as a post-liberal alternative when it seems to me he's just like some like liberal who tries to like put a band-aid on these situations. Yeah, I think that's a, those are fair points, actually. So um, I was trying to um, you know cast my net pretty broadly there. And you know, there are there's some of the there's some points of of and I said as I said, I, there, there's a there's a there's a, there's a sort of globalist uh, tendency of liberalism and a kind of um, imperialist tendency as well. And it seems to me that Zoni is, is, uh, is affecting those two points at least. But yeah, I think you're right. On, on a lot of other points, he's very much a part of it. Also, the book had a lot of like, jabs out of Christianity that they never liked. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't read it actually. Uh, I'm lying there on second hand information. So but, yeah, thanks. Thanks all. <laughs> yes, sir. So, something you mentioned is that, like, uh, as opposed to liberalism, a good alternative philosophy would be like ordering society towards human ends, right? Like, the end of human life. I like, I understand the point about ecumenical. I, I wrote down, okay, ecumenical integralism, like with Catholics and like conservative Protestants and stuff. But if non Christian religions have a fundamentally like different idea, of the ends of human life, how would that cooperation work? Like, I understand the pan-Christian thing. Yeah, no, it's an interesting problem. Um, so, you know, even if even if we say, I, mean, I, I would want to say that uh, uh, that religion in general is a good thing, but then the question is, well, what exactly do I mean by religion? Right? At what yeah. point, I so is Satan worship religion? And I'd say, no, it's not, right, in my opinion. Uh, so it, it isn't, uh, that very issue is itself not a theologically neutral. Issue, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it would be up to the majority of people in a society to decide how broadly they were going to understand religion in their, in their context. Um, and so, uh, so there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a kind of fixed answer here. That mm -hmm. there would be for, for liberalism, the answer is simple, right? It's just absolute neutrality on all sort of religious questions whatsoever, uh, which itself doesn't really make sense because you can't you can't actually exist the First Amendment. 
that singles out religious exercise for freedom, special freedom, and then say, but I don't know what religion is. Uh, yeah, right. So, uh, so there are already some tensions there in, in, the, in the Constitution itself. But of course, in the time in which they were writing, the authors were writing the First Amendment, there was a pretty broad consensus about what religion meant. Basically, Christianity, Judaism, basically it, right? Islam, I suppose, although it's not really a live issue. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an, an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we could uh, agree that, what, that, um, that there is a kind of transcendent purpose that human beings have, uh, some kind of an infinite, non-natural, right? Uh, meaning to human life, and uh, that people acknowledge that and respect it in different ways, and uh, we see that as, an, as sort of central to human flourishing. So there are things you can do, I think, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're, making, you're making a fair point there, um, which is that I, I would put it this way, that there's not, there's not really going to be a theologically or philosophically neutral conception yeah. What counts is the kind of religion we want to encourage in, in our society. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So I've always viewed myself as a liberal. Um, and I guess this is just the definition that I read, but most of the things that I would agree with rule of law, right of rebellion, um, procedural rights, place them under pretty liberal. Yeah. What, what would be the defining line as to when they diverge from your definition of liberal? Yeah, so I mean, it depends, it's, it differs somewhat from place to place. So as I said, I think America, the founding, was still a pre-liberal society. And it's, it's really in the course of the 19th, especially 20th century, that it became more and more liberal. And so the, the, reason, the reason I gave the, that list, right, was so that I could contrast it with the next list, which were characteristically liberal institutions. Right? So these are the things that you don't see in uh, or even very much in the American, American founding. We didn't actually have separation of church and state in the, uh, the American founding. Uh, Ten of the 13 states had church, they had established churches. Uh, so the First Amendment didn't mean no established church. It meant federal government was not going to interfere with established churches or not, right? So it was going to be left to the state. Uh, most states had laws uh, protecting Sabbath day. Most states had laws against blasphemy and so on. So, so there was no there was no strict separation of church and state the founding. That that really doesn't get to be well established in America until after World War II, until the Warren War Court uh, starts uh, misinterpreting the Fourteenth Amendment, I think, in such a way as to apply all the Bill of Rights to all the states and localities. Uh, and that's that, that's exactly the kind of uh, sort of aggressive liberalism that I'm opposed to, right? Uh, you know, looking around see if there's any liberal stuff going on anywhere and stamping it out. Uh, so that's 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 kind of a definitive view of, of what liberals consist of. Um, yeah. So um, so I mean, are there any things on that second list that you would? Uh, I mean, I suppose a lot of liberals might say, "Well, I'm not for war," but I mean, the tradition of liberalism has actually been pretty pro-war over in a pretty pretty consistent way. I mean, if you look at uh, England, for instance, in the 19th century, uh, the Liberal Party, the Whigs. Uh, they were keen on the empire. They, they were the most, they were the strongest kind of supporters of empire uh, because they saw that uh, they were, they had this divine task to bring liberalism to the, to the uh, uh, non-white races of the world and so on, right? Uh, it, was, it was many of the conservatives who were the little Englanders of the day who existed that. Um, a lot of, of course, 
you know, our, our uh, post-Cold post War nation building wars here. We've also been inspired by broadly liberal, you know, philosophy again, evil dictators, right, who are not practicing the liberalism. So we have to convey them right, and uh, establish a uh, uh, harm back of the beginning constitution. I so think we on. use that as an excuse, um, like, because they bring up the, like, the banana wars, you know, in, uh, yeah. in America. Yeah. But again, that was just, they, it just benefited the plantation owners. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that. I mean, there's a question if we get asked, you know, what's what's really driving this this pursuit uh, of war? Um, I mean, take, take let's go all the way back to, to the French Revolution and Napoleon, for instance, right? Sort of hard to see that as an economically motivated. Right? It really wasn't ideologically motivated. Um, they were going to bring this new kind of freedom and equality to all of Europe. Uh, and you know, make the world safer for the revolution and so on. Uh, and that was absolutely the, the first case of a kind of mass mobilization of the population for war. Before that, wars were on a much smaller scale. It was just the king tried to gather up a bunch of noblemen, maybe had a few peasants along the way. Uh, it was, uh, he had to scrimp and, and beg for money for the war. Uh, he didn't have the kind of power of, uh, of mass mobilization, draft, new taxes, war bonds, and all that kind of stuff. But, that we get you know, the modern world. Um, so, I mean, you could say, okay, that's just, that's just modernity, it's not liberalism. But I sort of think with modernity and liberalism is essentially the same thing. Liberalism is just the philosophical justification for where all stuff goes on in the modern world. Yeah, I do feel like we've progressed to this, the, the definition of liberal that um, you're thinking of. Because to me, um, I feel like Republicans and Democrats, they, they tend to call themselves you know, liberals. They tend to believe they're liberal, but I don't. I really don't think so. Yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that. Um, and so, I mean, there's this the folks who are sort of classical liberals often will say, you know, that uh, that things went went awry maybe in the 20th century, and we need to get back more to the 19th century classical liberal picture. But really, if you look at the history of it, it's sort of hard to make that case because. Um, John Stuart Mill and also the Liberal Party in England in the late 19th century were, were instrumental in creating what we now call progressivism and, and, and social democracy and so on. And they thought themselves as doing it for good and good reasons. So, it's, it's work. so um, you know, I mean, you can certainly have these internal debates among liberals about how much should we tax, how much should we regulate business, how much should we redistribute money from one class to the other. But what they all share is an inability to look at social, cultural ends as things in themselves that need to be protected. Right? They can only redistribute the wealth so that people can then exercise their autonomy with whatever wealth you give them, or not redistribute it. So they've got this sort of internal debates. But the liberal philosophy by its very nature is prohibited from saying, well, we want a kind of social life of a certain kind. We want we want working people to have a certain dignity, no matter what. Um, well, that's that's how we're superimposing our values on other people, right? We, we got to let the market or, or whatever you know sort these things out. On the, on the picture, okay. Anything else? Yeah. Could you flesh out the distinctions between, or maybe pros and cons between the bad campaign and the literal statement that people states? Yeah. I mean, like just like the soft moral voice, let's say that you. In yeah, yeah, so it's a good question. And I'm not really an expert on the papal states. Um, I mean, I think it's it's actually a somewhat difficult thing to justify given given the two sorts doctrine. 
actually, because it seems like it's a case where we have literally made the church into a state for, for that region. Um, I mean, maybe there were reasons, compelling reasons for doing it, despite its imperfection, right? Because it gave the folks a certain amount of independence from, from, from local kings and, and so on. Um, but yeah, what's happened, you know, and, and Catholic liberals often see this as a good thing, right? So the church, with, with, the, with the French Revolution and the separation of church and state, um, you know, the church in some ways has lost its political influence and political sway, kind that it had beforehand. And, and they'll say, but really it's a good thing, because now the church can just concentrate on being this moral force and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, just doing, doing the preaching and so on. And, and actually the Pope becomes more powerful, more influential, you know, as a result of being disentangled from all that. And uh, so there's some truth to that. Um, on the other hand, I'm not really altogether happy with the Pope being so powerful, actually. <laughs> I, I think in a way, uh, there's something to be said for a Pope that's sort of entangled with these complicated things so that his voice is not so dominant, right? Um, I'm not an ultramontanist, as you can tell, right? <laughs> it is, uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm very much in favor of the Catholic tradition, um, but it doesn't mean um, uh, that we should think of the Pope as the sort of CEO of the entire population and, uh, and superimpose his, his policies on every part of it in a uniform way. In a way that is itself a kind of liberal conception in a weird sort of way, I think. Uh, this is one point where I definitely do disagree with some of the integralists. Uh, I, think, I think that Vermeule and others are more ultramontanists, as they're more happy, happy with the idea of making popes and bishops more powerful politically. Um, I don't think that's a mistake myself. Not, not, I think, the same, not, not the sort of thing that's required by individualism that we understood. Um, I think I'm just kind of confused uh, on like the idea at the beginning of your lecture about like, the concept of goodness uh, and the common good. So uh, you kind of established that like there really isn't much room the concept of a common good and it's more just an aggregate. Um, I, I think that makes sense, but are, are there not like some kind of like common denominators among this aggregate that people would, because I think in the same way, like a lot of people would agree that like there are things that are commonly accepted as bad, right? So like, can there not universally be things that are like common denominators in the aggregate good that can be common good? Yeah, so I mean, it can, it can certainly be the case that the that the individual goods, the private goods of any society, have a certain overlap in certain ways. Right? So I was just thinking, for instance, um, I think a liberal could uh, justify, let's say, protecting the environment, you know, the air and water and so on, because clean air and water is something that every individual benefits from more or less the same way. And so they could do that without any way prejudging or imposing a kind of social end on society. Just well, we all agree, but we want this, we want these kind of resources to be available so we can do that. That's really possible. But what I think liberalism can do is take the same kind of attention to our social or our cultural environment. Because once they start doing that, they start saying, well, well we, you know, human flourishing will really happen most if we all, you know, I don't know, live in a mostly agrarian society. And then, so we're going to do things, uh, or, or a society where workers are mostly parts of guilds and so on. So then we're going, to, we're going to impose on society in some ways, or at least strongly encourage people to organize, organize their lives in this way rather than that way. That's the sort of thing liberalism can do, right? because that will presuppose some conception of, of the 
good, that would be good. And liberalism says, no, the good is simply the act of the individual desires. So you have to just empower the individual and then hope that they collaborate, perhaps, in creating certain social goods. But you can't, you can't impose the exception of social good on the world. Where exactly is the line like between like when a government is passing policy to uh, uphold individual liberties, like where where do they where do they cross that line into like starting to influence ends um, versus just you know empowering people um, for whatever individual yeah. liberty or, or, or goods that they want? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, so um, well, let's go back to like no fault divorce, for instance. Right. So uh, so the traditional pre liberal conception was. Marriage is an important part of our social life. Right? We're not going to, we're going to discourage divorce when it's really, really hard to get divorced. You have to prove that you, somebody was at fault and go through all the rigmaroles and so on. And in the 60s and 70s, people said, well, there's interfering with people's individual liberties. If people want to get divorced, they should get divorced. They want to get married, they get married. They want to, get married. They want to uh, alter the contract of marriage and uh, uh, you know, enter into prenatal agreements and so on. That should be fine. Right? So, so all of that was based on the idea of maximizing individual autonomy right? and really disregarding the fact that marriage has a role in shaping our lives, our common lives. Right? And that without stable marriage and stable homes, you know, the culture will fall apart, it's happening. Right? Uh, we're not able to reproduce ourselves, we're not able to create stable communities. Our, our, our folk culture is, is, is a disaster, you know, and so on. So all, all the kind of social um, uh, problems that we're seeing, right, I think are almost all of them a consequence of the breakdown of the family. And that's almost entirely a result of this prioritizing individual autonomy over, over the family structure. Especially if um, you know they're put into public schools and so on, where they're sort of indoctrinated by the liberal ideology and whatnot, uh, then, uh, then yeah, <laughs> that may slow it down. But I think I think you know, look, the point. So maybe it'll take longer than I thought, but eventually, right? Um, uh, we'll 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 exhaust those sources of people, right? Or they'll become liberal too, and then and then the whole world. Of course, there's people out there who think this is great. You know, demographic collapse is just exactly what they want. Uh, they want to see a world in which there are fewer and fewer, fewer people. But, um, but I think that you know that's uh, highly unstable right? uh, for lots of reasons. Um, and somewhere, somewhere, in fact, it's pretty clear that, that people who are more religious who live in more illiberal communities are going to uh, be more uh, fertile. It's just a very very solid social scientific evidence in favor of that. Um, so, uh, so I think that uh, it seems to be maybe, I, mean, I, I could be wrong, right? I mean, there, is, there are these countervailing forces. Right? Yeah. So, I'm really interested in this part of communication about the council of leaders. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a delicate balance keeping non Christian communities still incorporated into 
to the Christian faith or else something into like either a sort of liberalism or just yeah, I wonder how do they strike that balance from allowing them to be self-governing, keeping them incorporating like broader Christian political scene, um, not just slipping into liberalism or liberal principles. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of not an expert on the period. Um, so, but my understanding is that um, uh, that, that you know the, the Jewish communities in, in, in European countries were, were allowed to you know, live by the Torah, were allowed to practice uh, Sabbath and kosher and all that sort of thing, raise their own families, uh, and, uh, and have their own um, you know appeal to their own courts to settle disputes at least among themselves. I know there's some. I mean, there's been some talk about doing something like that in America with respect to things like Sharia law or Muslim immigrants, and some people on the right are very much opposed to that, right? Um, but I actually think that uh, that's the sort of accommodation that makes sense. Um, I mean, maybe there, again, there may be limits. There may be certain practices for some cultures that we want to forbid. But uh, on the other hand, just in principle, the idea that uh, that different communities could be here and could practice uh, their own religion and gain a kind of communal way, I think is, uh, is important. Because it's a very crucial issue, right? So, so again, with the war in court, in general, the idea was that the, the right of free exercise is the right of individuals to do what they want. It's not the right of churches or organizations. There's, there's only one court case I know of that, that actually respects, maybe there's more, but there's one, the Yoder case was the one where the Amish were allowed to keep their kids out of public schools after third grade or something like that, some fairly low grade, on the grounds that this is essential to their way of life. Right? Um, but that's the really outlier. In general, the idea was religious liberty is an individual right, not a, not a collective right, and not a right of a community or even the parents over their children, but just individuals to do their own thing. And that, I think, well, that, that, that's, again, very disruptive. Uh, it's why we see and why do we see religious affiliation going down? It's not, I think, because you know, we discovered, I don't know, scientific or archaeological evidence and it's the most plausible, which is the most plausible, I think that's the case at all. It's just that uh, communities and families are breaking down and uh, the state is interfering with processes of uh, socializations that are needed to, to uh, perpetuate religion. Uh, so it's a, it's a byproduct of, of, our, of our other policies. Uh, yeah, I'm in back. Uh, I read somewhere that the U.S. spends like, it's like 15 grand every year per kid on public schooling. What do you I can't, what do you think of the idea of like just giving fifteen thousand dollars per kid to parents and letting them spend it on whatever school they want to? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good thing. Um, I mean, I would allow again some local communities not to do that if they don't want to. Right? Mm -hmm. But but the error really again is the idea that you know. We, Nationalized education, created department of education, all this kind of stuff. And as a result, the quality of education has gone down everywhere, especially in public schools. So certainly, I'm in favor in general right, of, of yeah, allowing allowing uh, parents to take that money and to go to a parochial school if they want to. Right? Again, uh, the courts have been very reluctant to do that because you're mixing church and state. I think that's that's a mistake. Way back, yeah. yeah. Uh, so is the council's ruling is that essentially how Satan uh, the night basically ran his his kingdom? That's my understanding. Yeah, that was still still in force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned policy. Um, it, 
is my understanding that in terms of influence on the legislature, on laws, on policy, on governance and the application of that generally, it used to be the hierarchy was church, state, and then merchant last. And in America, we've kind of flipped it to merchant, state, and then church last. Would you agree with that? Sort of. Um, I mean, yeah, in Galatius's view, um, of course, it's true that the church is primarily responsible for our highest end, which is the spiritual end. Right? And that's higher than any temporal end. But it's still part of the state's responsibility to contribute to that, too. So, uh, so, the, so the state, of course, doesn't do it sort of independently, but does, does so in ways that support that support the church's activities. So, um, so yeah, I think, um, I, I guess what you're saying makes, makes some sense. And it sort of fits in with what I was saying there towards the middle where I suggested that you know, what liberals generally have done is to replace, try to replace religious impulse with this commercial impulse. And, uh, and you know, it works to some extent. Uh, Stanley Johnson, I think, famously said, uh, man is seldom so innocently occupied as in making money. And uh, you, know, you can sort of, people get along pretty well on that kind of basis for a lot. But I do think that what we're seeing is that liberalism is, is has really relied heavily on, on a kind of social, cultural capital from the pre-liberal era, which were, which were gradually exhausting. And uh, so it seems to be more and more stressed, as I can tell, as a, as a way of uh, ordering our lives. Right? Just following up on that, so you, yeah. you kicked off the talk talking about uh, an infinite regress of subjectivity when it comes to what constitutes the ultimate authority on truth, on goodness, and really the application of love. And that you know the liberal version is, is that infinite regress. There is no really way to define that. Whereas the Catholic Church is that is the Trinity. Yeah. And yeah. so then you ended the talk with uh, not advocating for ecclesiastical governance in any area, not even marriage. Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, what would I say there? Um, I mean, again, it would depend on the circumstances, but um, I think I think you could imagine a situation in which people who are Catholic could get married in the Catholic Church, and then their marriage would be governed by the Church. Uh, if someone wants to be married in a Protestant Church or a Jewish synagogue or something like that, and their marriages would be governed by the rules of that community. So, um, so there would still be. I mean, you know, I, the point is that the state wouldn't try to have a monopoly here, right? Where it's the only one who gets to set the rules for these kinds of relationships. Um, it would instead respect the fact that there are other institutions that have to be, have their own autonomy. Yeah. So when you talk about institutions having autonomy outside of the um, ultimate authority from the institution of the church, yeah. um, I guess when those institutions come into conflict with each other, because yeah. this is a big part of libertarians, which yeah. is there's no way to reconcile disputes because there's no standard of truth or standard of value. Because yeah. um, that's completely eroded in that model. So I guess how ultimately when you apply that, how would that work without you know negating that truth? That's really, I guess. Yeah, right, right. Good, good. So, right. So I, you know, maybe I should make another distinction here too between, um, um, you know, Having, having toleration for various religions, right? 
and, and being a theologically neutral state that is, has no establishment whatsoever. So you could certainly, I could certainly imagine a state that is officially Christian or Catholic, right? And uh, will make these kind of judgments in light of Catholic theology, while at the same time tolerating all kinds of non-religious, non-Christian, non-Catholic non uh, communities within that, while those communities have their freedom as well. Since from a Catholic point of view, they have their value, they have their value as people's attempt to act from their conscience in relationship to God. So, um, so yeah, I, I think you could make some sense along those lines. Yeah, so you know, and one thing, other thing to note is that, you know, in, in the Middle Ages, there were lots of conflicts, right? Mm -hmm. Lots and lots of conflicts, for instance, between the emperor and the pope, uh, and uh, between the pope and various kings over who had what authority, what sorts of things could go to the church court, what kinds of courts, when could the king uh, choose the bishop, and when he couldn't be, and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and it was complicated, right? Because they didn't have a theory that said, in every case, the king wins, in every case, the pope wins, or whatever. They might claim that, but, uh, but there was no consensus around, around that. And that kind of uh, perpetual conflict, I think, looking back, is a good, sort of helpful thing, right? Uh, to eliminate it entirely and to have this kind of streamlined society where uh, the Supreme Court gets the ultimacy out of everything. Yeah, it makes things kind of simple in a way, but it, it also creates all kinds of evils as a result, right? Much better to live with ambiguity and conflict. And, uh, you know, the, the, both the Pope and the Emperor, the Pope and the King, they would think, well, you know, you don't want to go too far, the whole thing will fall apart, right? And so they're, they're sort of constrained by prudence in various ways to, to work out things amongst themselves uh, without either side conceding that the other has no ability to deal with these so like, just real quick on that point, like I wouldn't want Joe Biden giving me communion or hearing confession, That's but right. I also wouldn't want Pope Francis, Pope Francis deciding the outcome of a business dispute that I'm having yeah. in any regard. So right. like, from my understanding, what you, when you mentioned like the two swords doctrine, you're talking about the relationship between the throne and altar, yeah. which doesn't exist in America. Yeah. And I guess where I was going at with that was in terms of telos or like an ultimate reality that a nation can pursue, I guess I didn't kind of get the sense that it would be a righteous and just pursuit for a nation that doesn't have ecclesiastical governance to pursue ecclesiastical governance, especially in light of what, you know, laws and policies are being applied to people and what the outcomes of that application, you know, Manifest. Yeah, I mean, so from a Catholic point of view, I would say that it's very imperfect that not everyone's Catholic. <laughs> that would be the ideal, right? Uh, and so, um, and so, clearly, you won't have to um, then ask, you know, prudentially, what's the best arrangement in the world where not everyone is Catholic? Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, we're never going to be in an ideal situation, right? Uh, this side of, of the eschaton, right? So. It's always a matter of trying to figure out, um, you know, in light of the truth about what human beings are really all about, the objective truth about that, right? How best to accommodate the complexities of our, of our world. Um, again, I think maybe the difference here is that, that a liberal uh, always thinks that he always has the answer, right? It's a simple answer that can be applied universally. And uh, the kind of the kind of interpolists or post-liberal I'm describing 
thinks it's actually very complicated, right? Uh, and uh, there's no there's no one size fits all. You have to exercise prudence and wisdom in figuring out how to navigate different complex situations. Again, uh, I don't think conflict itself is something one has to feel you know somehow abolish forever, right? You create this streamlined machine that will uh, always spit out some definite answer in every case. That's a, that's a kind of fantasy that we So we the last question. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> this is pretty broad. Um, uh, in your talk, you went very quickly over section three, right? The one about the American yeah, yeah. Uh, founding. Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to hear your opinion on that more, more completely. Um, yeah. uh, and just I would add to that, my sense is that it's your, your thought that um, America has become more liberal since yeah. the founding. And I, I kind of like to hear you tell a little bit of that story. Yeah, so that's a big, sort of a big question. But, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to be said here, but um, uh, I, I, I find what people like Russell Kirk and others say about the medieval and feudal survivals in America and persuasive. I mean, you often find you know, that the kind of backwaters are, are the isolated places or places where these older traditions last longer in the view in the center. So, like, really isolated people tend to speak Shakespearean English, though, right? As opposed to people in urban centers where they're also being most modern window, right? And so, you know, America this time was kind of a backwater and uh, a long ways from London didn't have the same kind of uh, impact. Liberals in India had the same kind of impact there that they had in, in, in the center of the empire. Um, so, um, so there were lots of, uh, I mean, of course, the common law itself, the, um, uh, the uh, power of a variety of churches, um, mostly established churches at the time, um, the um, self, sort of self-governing communities that didn't have police forces and courts and so on. They were, they were much more legal uh, kinds of uh, agrarian societies in some ways. Um, and then I think in America, it's relatively late. I mean, it's only, it's only. Uh, I, mean, I, I guess you could say Lincoln is liberal in lots of ways. Um, so during the Civil War and Reconstruction, there's a steady shift in that direction. Uh, certainly, uh, World War One, World War Two, and uh, Warren Court, and all of that, and just much more in a liberal direction. Uh, even today, we're not 100% liberal. Still, survivals of that older kind of uh, way of life uh, here, less and less so. Again. But uh, yeah, that's, that's my simple answer, I guess. Uh, you know, again, I mentioned Locke. I mean, some of the founders did, did quote Locke quite a bit, but they hadn't really studied Locke in detail. They didn't really know anything about the yeah, Epistemology and so on, that Locke was relying on. Uh, so it's actually not until not much later that uh, liberal ideas become dominant, I think. Close to the world. Thank you, Professor Evans.